Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter or your app or whatever you use to follow along. Uh, we're doing a series in 1 Peter, and we're looking at this concept of exile. And uh, in here, as we're kind of reminded, Peter addresses this letter to the exiles. He uses a key Hebrew word that's dispersed, um, and he's writing mostly to Gentiles. And so what Peter is doing is he's inviting the Gentile believers to enter into this story of what it means to be an exile. There's a couple different, uh, several really, I think the theme of exile is all through scripture, but you know, a couple of when uh, you know, Israelite is, is being um, saved from Egypt, they end up in an exile in a, in a, in a time of being in between. Uh, but the biggest exile is when Israel becomes a nation. Um, then they divide into the north and the south. And uh, eventually, uh, the north ends up in captivity. Uh, and then the south goes into exile into Babylon. And they come back out of exile. But there's still a large group of Jews spread out all over the north and south. And they, they consider that part of an exile. It's part of their history. Now, Peter invites us to be involved in this story. And he uses this term exiles or scattered uh, several times uh, in the story. Now, it's interesting because he's writing again to Gentiles who are not, they're not being cast out of their towns. They're not exiled out of their towns. Why are they exiled? They're exiled by a choice of following Jesus. Uh, And some of them are probably much more exiled than you. Some of it might have affected their ability to sell and buy goods in their town. They might have been outcasts. It might have exiled them from their family. It might have exiled them from just their community rhythms. You and I don't often experience those types of exiles, although one day we may. But Peter is inviting us to enter into this theme, this story of exile. So we looked at the introduction a couple weeks ago, uh, Rich preached on the gospel here in verses 3 through 9 as uh, Peter introduces the foundation for why we are different. And then in verses uh, 10 through 12, it's kind of this interesting little uh, side note where Peter says, you know, the people that wrote these things in the Old Testament, they were longing to know about how this was going to be filled, how this was going to come along. You're living it in a sense. So we pick up in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for actions, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for, your, for, for the sake of you, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter introduces this idea of how we are to live in exile. And what Peter is teaching us is that living in exile should be both purposeful and visible to the world that we are living in. Uh, Our exile, chosen by following Christ, should be both visible and purposeful in the world in which we live. And so we're going to look at this morning three things. The exile's hope, the exile's character, and the exile's lifestyle. So first, the exile's hope. And here, I think what Peter is challenging us to do is to get into the right frame of mind. So he says, uh, at the beginning of our passage, and it's where we divide it here, therefore, anytime you're in Bible classes, you stop and say, what is that word, therefore, therefore? And he's referring to this whole gospel thing that Rich laid out last week. And really, if we could just sum it up, look back at verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Therefore, since since you're saved, I want you to base uh, this hope on our, this, this hope is based on our living hope, a living hope. It's not just some sort of like thing that we're kind of, hmm, I hope this happens. It's a living hope. So, not to preach Rich's sermon, but since we've, been, since we've experienced God's mercy back in verse 3, since he caused us to be born again, we keep hearing that phrase in verse 3, since we have an imperishable inheritance in verse 4, since God is guarding our faith in verse 5, since God is testing us and conforming us into his image in verses 6 and 7, and since the angels and prophets were were looking forward to this in anticipation, because of all that, he says, we set our hope fully on the grace of God. Now, look over at verse 18. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from a feudal way of life that you inherited. And so, in a sense, Peter says, what are you going to do here? Are you going to live according to this hope that we have because of the grace of Jesus? Are you going to keep going back to that old way of living, which is really useless? So I want you to set your hope fully on the living hope that we have because of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. And then he goes on to say, I want you to prepare your minds. Now, there's some parts in here, I don't like to go back to original languages very much, but here we're missing part of the story. And your old King James is a a little bit more uh, um, accurate here. The ESV says, preparing your minds for action. 
The word here is girding the loins of your mind. Now, we understand why, why they translate that differently. Because if, if I say to somebody, you need to gird up the loins of your mind, they're going to look at me like I'm nuts. But the idea in those days, men and women, they wore these long flowing robes. And so if you had to run or if you had to move or if you had to, you know, chuck wood or you had to carry stuff, you would take the garments and you would tie them up into kind of some shorts so your legs could move. And so he uses this imagery that everybody could kind of see in their minds. And he says, I want you to gird up the loins. I want you to, I want you to get prepared in your minds. And when Peter does this, he embraces all sorts of language. Peter here uses exile language. What do I mean by that? The Passover meal was eaten with your shoes on, your belt tightened, and ready to go. And so he says, gird up the loins. This is kind of exile language. It's, it's also, as I just said, it's work language. In other words, preparing your mind is work. Why do we have sign-ups for Bible studies up here and encourage you to join a small group? Because we think we need to be working our minds in a correct way. We, we believe in church, you need to hear this, that we're all on a journey, y'all haven't arrived yet. Unless the Lord's called you home, you're not there. So we need to prepare our minds for action. It's work. Third, Peter also embraces a, a future hope language. As I was looking at this term, girding up, your loins. Uh, one commentator took us to uh, Luke chapter 12, and, and it just really made me think a little bit. Luke chapter 12 and verse 35, it says, say dress for action. There it is. Gird up your loins. Keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Now just we're jumping into another text here, but listen, we, I think you can hear this, right? Who's the master? It's God. Where's the wedding feast? This, I mean, you, you, you have all this great language here. And so you're waiting for the master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open up the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants. Look, they're waiting. They're, they're anticipating their master's return so the wedding feast can, can come. Now, what happens when the king, the master, gets to the wedding feast? What do the servants do? Serve the king. That's their job. But Luke changes the story. Jesus changes the story. And he says, and when the master comes and finds uh, awake when he comes, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Jesus is going to gird up his loins and serve his people. Now, you, you just, there, sometimes we read these things and we go, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that is. No, it's total reverse of what's supposed to happen. That's not how it's supposed to work out. In an honor-shame society, the king is always the king, never the servant. And so Peter is using this beautiful language of what we're to do with our minds to prepare ourselves 
in this exile. Now, the third thing that we're called to do in this hope is that it's supposed to be based on a sober mind. Now, this is one of those things in sermon prep, I'll be honest, I, future hope, I, I was there, or going back to what, what Rich talked about, prepared our minds for action, did all this stuff on, on girding up your loins and, and sober mind, and I had that in the notes, and later on I came back and I said, what does that even mean? Sober mind. And this one really impacted me. Obviously, you can make a distinction between being sober and not sober or drunk. And uh, it's interesting, Peter uses this word three times in 1 Peter. It's only used an, an additional three times in all of the New Testament. So Peter, Peter likes this word. Usually when this word is used, it is attached with uh, the phrase about watching and waiting. Uh, if you want to see in, in chapter 5, um, Peter uses this word again. I'm sorry, just looking at my notes. Uh, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. In other words, when that word sober comes up, watchful is often attached with it. And so if we look at this hope, it's grounded in the gospel, it's spiritually prepared, and then it is spiritually alert. It's, it's waiting, it's watching. Now there's something else to be thinking about with this sober, not sober mentality. And I was really challenged by this this week. We need to be careful that the things that we've prepared and learned are not taken away by other stuff that we allow in. In other words, we need to make sure that we keep checking it to the source. And, uh, you know, my, my wife and I were on vacation the previous week, and uh, we have a tradition. We love to go down to Ashland. We, we love the theater. And, uh, and they've, over the years, put on some great shows, and some aren't so great. But we went to the first show. It was a Shakespeare play, and they took a lot of political liberties and made Shakespeare say some things that I don't even think Shakespeare would have imagined in his day. And we walked out, and my wife turned to me and said, if they're going to be doing that, we can't keep coming. Because there was something that was trying to be taught that was not according to the gospel, not according to God's word. Now, fortunately, the other two shows were not that way. So now we have to do a lot more reading before we go next time. But there's, there's constant things that are coming to attack that preparedness. And we need to make sure that we remain sober. The exile has a hope. Second, uh, on your notes, the exile's character and it's centered on a life of non-conformity to this world. As obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It's centered, this idea of this new character, it's centered on a life of non-conformity to this world. Now, 
nonconformity is a big, you know, catch phrase. But what he is saying is, as you seek God's word, as you seek God's truth, it's not going to be in conformity to the world. And he says it shouldn't be based on passions of your former ignorance. Now, don't just think sexual lust, although it includes that. But this is a group of people who came out of idol worship. In a sense, they were used to having spiritual passions, which was striving after the approval of God. There's monetary passion, striving after more. There's power passion, striving after position, and sexual passions that are striving after self-fulfillment. And Peter says, look, our character is to be different, and it shouldn't be centered on this world. It should be a life of non-conformity. Specifically, he is calling us to holiness. It's centered on holiness. So he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This is how you're to conduct yourselves in exile. Now, Peter gives us some foundations for holiness. And so we can ask the question here, why? Why should we be holy? And the first answer is because God is holy. Why should we be holy? Because God is holy. Not because the Bible says so. It does, but that's not the reason. The reason the Bible says, I want you to refer to the author of all this. Be holy because God is holy. That is who we are following. Second, we are to be holy because it's part of our family identity. Be holy because God is holy. And then he goes on in verse 17 and he says, and if you call him as your father. There's a new identity that happens as followers of Jesus Christ. And if he is the father, then we have a new identity in him. And this is, this is a little bit hard for us to culturally grab a hold of. Um, I don't introduce myself as the son of, most of you don't, I mean, you know my mom because she comes here, but uh, most of you, you don't know my family back, other than the illustrations I've given, which my mom worries about, by the way. Um, but my identity, my identity is not based on my family heritage, most often. But in that culture, you were always the son of or the daughter of the family. And so what they said is, look, you have a new identity in God the Father. And that identity calls us to act according to that family identity. Okay, another way of saying this, and I've said this before, uh, every family, as, as Rich said, everybody has different traditions and stuff like that. And what do you do? Christian kids are always difficult, right? What do you do with Christian kids? And they go over to their house and everybody has different rules on what movies are okay based on I don't know what. And so, you know, we tell our kids what movies they could watch when they were little or what, what things they could watch on TV, which they constantly repeat back to me now. You wouldn't let us watch this and you wouldn't let us watch this and all that. And so they said, well, what if, what if we're at so-and-so's house and they get to watch it? And the answer was this. The fields 
don't watch that. It's a family thing. Okay, and I and say, I, the last thing I want is the preacher's kid going, because Jesus doesn't like us to watch that. My dad says, you're going to go to, no, that, we, that wasn't the conversation. No we, the, no, we have chosen not to watch that. So why do you do things differently than the world? Why do you conduct yourselves differently? Because our father is different. It's because of our, father, our, our family identity. Now, the third thing is a little bit scary here. He says in the passage, because God judges impartially. Let me read verse 17 again. Listen to it. And if, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. It's interesting, there's, uh, in this passage that I read this morning, there's four commands. Um, uh, the first command was to fix your hope. Okay, we talked about that. The second command is to be holy. We're talking about that. The third command is to conduct yourselves in fear. And the fourth command is about love, which is coming up. Each one of us, Paul says a different way, for each one will stand before God and give an account. And I I think we grew up in a church and it was just kind of like, yeah, God forgives our sins, absolutely. God forgives us, but there's also accountability in this family. There's accountability in God's family. As followers of Jesus, you will stand and give an account for how you acted in this family. And he says, why don't you live in exile with that in mind? Your deeds, your words, your actions carry responsibility. And be assured, your father judges impartially. Now, if you're outside the family, that sounds really good. But if you're inside the family, you're kind of hoping for a little better deal. Don't worry, your father will let it go. Don't worry, dad's a softy. He's going to judge you, wink, wink. No. He says, conduct yourselves in fear God judges impartially. Now, obviously our sins are forgiven. We're not held accountable for that that sin that separates us from God. And and please, I'm not saying we're saved by works. I'm just saying that in the Christian life, it is clear to me from Scripture, there is some accountability for what we do. How we live, how we conduct ourselves. So, Why should we be holy? Because God is holy, because our family identity, because God judges impartially, and because of the cost of your salvation. Peter isn't just trying to throw in a little gospel thing in here. He is saying, be holy because your father is holy. Live in fear of this impartial, live, live with this idea of responsibility. And then he says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed, from this futile way of, of ways inherited from your fathers, not with, not with perishable things. It's not that you weren't bought with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. 
It was costly for you to be brought into this family. The exile's character is centered on a life of nonconformity and holiness. And then again, it's centered on the gospel. He is making a distinction between who we were before the grace of God entered our life by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he's reminding us that this was no small thing. The prophets and the angels longed to understand how God was going to do this. My Old Testament class loved to bring my students to, I believe it's Exodus 34, where it says, God is a God of grace and mercy and forgiving sins. And then it says, but then he judges sins to the third and fourth generation. Wait a second, you said he's forgiving, and then it, one hand, what, which, ha, what? Because he sent somebody to pay the price. And that was Jesus Christ. His wrath, his judgment, was appeased because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can't walk into that as a family followers of Jesus Christ lightly. We must enter into it in holiness. So finally, and um, I want to wrap things up, and I know things are going a little bit longer this morning with the explanations. They've been great. I've appreciated it. But the third thing here is that he, exiles, have a new lifestyle. And that lifestyle is based on love. And he says in verse 22, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, there it is again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The love that we are to have as followers of Jesus is to be sincere. Um, and, and, he, and he says, look, there's, there's all sorts of love and counterfeit loves and uh, wrong definitions of love and all these things in our world today. And he says, this is, this is how we know our, real, our love is real. It's because it's based on a living hope. Our, our love isn't based on feelings. It's based on a living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And because that living hope is real... You, as a result, have purified your heart through obedience. God is changing you, molding you, shaping you into his image. And it's real. What makes the church's love real? Listen, is because you've been born again. You've been born again. And Peter keeps using this word, born again. It's new. It's a new life. It's a new beginning. It's a new family. It's a new strength, a new identity. You've been born again. Now, I just want to say just real quickly, and I don't care how old you are. I don't care how long you've been in church. He is not saying because you've gone to church. He is not saying because your parents were Christians. 
He's not saying because you vote a certain way or believe a certain thing. He is saying that this love, this relationship, this sincerity comes when we are born again. When life changes. It's a love that's sincere. And second, it's, it's a love that's fervent. Uh, he says, in the ESV, he says, uh, um, since you've been born again, uh, excuse me, um, sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. Uh, earnestly sounded a little bit too much like sincerity to me. And as I looked at it, it's more of a, a fervent. It's more of a passion, a, a lot. It, it's, it's not just true, it's, it's overflowing. And look, church, I, I know you're doing it. I, I don't know what happened. I guess, I guess because Mark is here this morning, it's like, I feel like it was like reunion Sunday in some ways. Um, like, wow, I've seen some faces here in a while and glad to see you. Um, we love you. Uh, whatever I said, I'm sorry. Um, but as a church, as a church, right, we want to love more. You're doing good. Keep going. As a church, right? I, I know you're trying to do it. We can keep trying harder. I, I know you're tired of hearing about it, but we can push through. Why? Because we have a new power, strength, and identity in being born again. And then Peter ends this by saying this love, this exile, this holiness, this character, this hope, Again, it's all based on the truth of God's word. Since you've been born again, the abiding word of God, and he talks about how grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God remains. And he ends with again saying, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. It's all based on the gospel, on the truth. That's what it's based on. We keep coming back to who Christ is, what he has done, who he's calling us to be in light of that. So here's the application in action. Here's how we stand out as exiles. We need to live like people that have a living hope. When life is hard, when you get the phone call you don't want, when you're short at the end of the month, when the relationship is strained, we don't throw in the towel because we know we're living with a living hope. That doesn't mean that we don't ignore the, it doesn't mean we just ignore everything either. Oh, well, just forget it. Jesus loves us. No. We go into that with a living hope. We live differently. Second, hopefully people can see that our lives stand out in character. We have done a lot uh, in this last year on uh, conflict resolution as a church. And uh, one of the leaders uh, at uh, CB Northwest that came in and helped us with a lot of these things, um, his job before working for CB Northwest was uh, conflict resolution 
uh, in government. I don't think he should have left that job. But um, it, not at the higher ranks, but just with government employees, conflict resolution. And uh, one of the sad things that became a reality to me is that corporations are talking more about biblical conflict resolution than churches are. We should excel in forgiving others because we've been forgiven. We should excel in overlooking people's faults because God has forgiven ours. We should be understanding that people are in a process of change because we've been saved from what Peter says is just this worthless way of life. So in all areas, our character should stand out. And then third, our love should stand out. How we love one another inside and outside these doors. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning and for the things that uh, we're being reminded of and why we do church. But even beyond that, Lord, we thank you for the new life that we have in Jesus Christ through faith. We recognize that uh, being born again, having been given a new hope, um, centering our life on a new way of thinking, brings with it many challenges. We're exiled. But it also brings with it many opportunities to be a light in the world as you were. And so help us as a church, as individuals, to uh, live with hope and character and love in a way that stands out. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.